Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. For this guest episode, I had the chance to talk to Dr Kirsty Sedgman, who, as part of her academic work, has studied audience behaviour in the theatre. It seemed particularly pertinent to discuss this topic now, as we're hearing more and more stories in the media about the bad behaviour of audiences. But in fact, Kirsty's first published work on the subject, The Reasonable Audience, was published in 2018 as a result of study over the preceding years. As Kirsty mentions in our conversation, this was an academic work, and although published, is therefore quite expensive to buy. But both print and Kindle editions are still available. Her latest work, published this year, On Being Unreasonable, extends that work into wider socio-political and historical areas and is a fascinating read. This work is designed for more general readership and, I'm glad to say, published at a much more affordable price by Faber and Faber, and it's available online and in your local bookshops. I've put links in the show notes for both works. So, I was interested to draw out some details of historic audience behaviours in comparison to what we're seeing happen today, and how the concept of how a theatre audience should behave was built up from the past. Our reference points were British theatre and the British pandemic experience, but I think the experiences in other countries in Western Europe and North America were similar enough for most people to feel some resonance with the points made on the effect of the pandemic in particular. However, during our conversation, there were a couple of very specific references that need a bit of background. There was an incident very recently of some particular audience behaviour during a performance of The Bodyguard musical that hit the headlines in the UK because the police were called to the incident and the performance was abandoned before the end. If you're interested to read more details on this, I've put a link in the show notes to a report on the incident from the Manchester Evening News. We also mentioned a lockdown incident involving a then high-profile government adviser, Dominic Cummins, who appeared to engage in quite a serious breach of the lockdown rules that were in force at the time. I've put a link in the show notes to the Wikipedia article that explains the story in more detail. My thanks to Dr Sedgman for fitting me into her very busy schedule uh, for what I think you will find is a really fascinating conversation about an audience's expectations of theatre, the impact of agreements that we make about our behaviour when we go to the theatre, where historically these attitudes have come from, and how that reflects on issues in wider society that are changing so much at the moment. To start with, I asked Dr Sedgman to introduce herself. I'm Dr Kirsty Sedgman. I'm a lecturer in theatre at the University of Bristol and I am a doctor of audiences. So how, how does one become a doctor of audiences? <laughs> well, first of all, I started calling myself on that on Twitter and then the title stuck. So it's self-styled. My official title is theatre lecturer. But really what I study is audiences. I use theatre as a vector for understanding what it means to be together and how we negotiate those rules in public places like a theatre, which I think is an extraordinary laboratory for figuring out what it means to be a collective. Yes. So the um, experience we all had in the pandemic of not being able to go to the theatre, I think, really opened up those ideas again that the theatre is a place where special things happen. Uh, unique experiences amongst a group of people gathered together. And that has kind of been the way since it started back in Athens 
in the fifth century BCE. I mean, do you think we have a view of how really how the ancient Greeks thought of the theatre? Obviously, the records are extremely patchy, but I've always been really interested in the debates that happened between the few philosophers whose records we still do have today between people like Aristotle, who really championed the theatre and particularly the tragedies as a kind of social safety valve to get everybody together into that shared space. And when I say everybody, what I mean is citizens. So not really everybody, but everyone that they saw as fully human, getting them together into this public sphere and then hitting them with these cathartic experiences as a way to diffuse political and social unrest. And the difference between that viewpoint and people like Plato, who actually were much more worried about theatre and about even about the unruliness of audiences who couldn't necessarily be disciplined and who he thought might have been turned weird by cathartic tragedies and all that emoting and lamenting. And uh, we're thinking this is probably just the male audiences, but it's it's there are some references to to maybe women attending the theatre. Yes, maybe women, definitely only citizens. That seems to be the suggestion in yeah. records. So these days we would talk about, and, and you've talked in your book about the theatre contract, which is a an unwritten, may, maybe we could talk about whether it's written as well these days, agreement between the audience and the people producing the, the show, uh, the play, about how we're all going to behave. Do you think that sort of unwritten agreement existed back in ancient Greece? Well, as far back as Plato. He was complaining about what he called, I always struggle to say this, so let's have a go, a vicious theatrocracy, which was a belief that he had that audiences weren't like how they were in his youth, where everyone used to be quiet and could be controlled with a stick, he said, but had started to find their voice and shout and cheer and past comment on the performances and that's something that he saw as a really bad thing but isn't that interesting that he's commenting on something that somebody could be saying today about what how they feel about theater and they absolutely are saying that which is what all my research has studied so i wouldn't claim myself to be a theater historian i draw on the work of eminent theater historians who have done that rich detailed archival research. But what I really study is discourse. I'm interested in the language that we use both in the past and also in the present to talk about what the experience of going to a theatre is like. Because whether it's a play by someone like Brecht or a political phenomenon like the Brexit referendum, I am endlessly fascinated by how we can watch the exact same event unfolding but come to such radically different conclusions about what it means than the person who might even be sitting next to us. So exactly what Brecht was trying to uh, clear away by making a theatre an experience that was more of an educational experience than a um, cathartic one. Yes, I am really interested. We talk a lot about a chap called Jacques Ronciere in my teaching. And he was, he's a 
French philosopher guy. He wrote a book about teaching called The Ignorant Schoolmaster about how when you're in the classroom, it's a mistake to think about students as empty of knowledge and the teacher as full of knowledge. And instead, you should see each party is coming to that experience with different kinds of knowledge and activity that can then be mutually informing. And he said, you know, went on to write this book called The Emancipated Spectator, where he said that within theatre practice, we've been caught between, between two poles. On the one hand, you've got Brecht, who believed that audiences hang up their brains in the cloakroom when they enter the theatre and then they need to be distanced and hit with the Fremdung's effect in order to be able to think critically again. And then on the other side of the poll, you have Arto, people like Anton mm-hmm. Arto, who believed audiences were passive voyeurs, peeping toms, he called them. And instead of distancing, he thought that audiences needed to be activated through immersion. And what Rancière says quite rightly, I think, is that the way that we've tended to talk about audiences, whether it's Brecht or Arto or Peter Brook and his deadly theatre or Grotowski and his poor theatre, um, is we've tended to talk about audiences as if they are fundamentally default setting passive, needing to be made active through practitioner intervention. And actually what he said is that's not true. We're all active all the time because we come to performances with our own understandings and expectations and memories and senses of identity. And what my work studies is how people bring all of those things to bear in the process of making sense of different kinds of performance experience. Right. So so to continue on the historical theme for a moment before we get to what's happening today, obviously people go to the theatre for very different reasons than they did in uh, the Greek period or the Roman period or even the medieval period, where we maybe have to take religion out of the theatre. So that that changes the way we look at theatre and the way we're expected to behave in it. But that didn't mean that theatre beyond the medieval period was any less rambunctious than um, it has been recently, we might say. Absolutely, yes. Um, In fact, there are some brilliant studies by people like Richard Butch, who traced in his book, The Making of the American Audience, he traced a, a kind of ebb and flow between two sets of worries. And we can see that, we absolutely can see that going back as far as the ancient Greeks and that kind of battle that I started to talk about between people like Plato and Aristotle. Because on the one hand, there is a perennial worry that audiences are too active, that they are taking undemocratic control over events that should be led by performers, that they are erupting into mob-like behaviours and then the worry is always for people who in that audience are assumed to be vulnerable and at risk Mm. like whenever a theatre riot happens everybody's very concerned about usually white middle class women and how they might be harmed by these rowdy audiences but on the other hand there is a common concern that audiences then become too passive they become vulnerable to cultural effects. And we see that particularly in the mass me- the emergence of mass media, the worries about um, audiences as cultural dupes. 
at risk of the hypodermic effect of mass media messages and particularly propaganda. And there has been this ebb and flow between concerns that audiences are too passive and aren't democratically using their voice enough and concerns that audiences are too active and are devaluing and disrespecting performers' labour and expertise. And I think what we're seeing now is a collision between different expectations of what audiencing should be like and, in fact, what public spaces more broadly should be for. So you you would absolutely see that what we see in the theatre is extending out into society in general. Yes. So that is my new book on being unreasonable, which is my third book. But it's the first that is for an audience, not just of academics. It's published by Faber, who are a trade publisher. So it's actually at bookshops. This book, really, I thought I'd said everything that I wanted to say about audience behaviour and how audiences police the behaviour of other people in my academic work. And then lockdown hit. And I realised that everything that I'd been writing about, specifically within theatre for years, about how people are always watching each other and judging each other's behaviour and trying to curtail that behaviour for pro-social reasons to keep everybody and to keep theatre a nicer, better, more enjoyable experience for everyone, but also the way that that can sometimes sour into failing to consider other people Mm. and the needs of, say, disabled people who might need to take the occasional glance at a device that is screen-based that might be mistaken for a phone, but actually they're using for disability reasons. How all of those things, the audience contract that I've written about, expanded into every aspect of social life, into more broadly the social contract. Because what I noticed, again, from studying the discourse is... um, how easily that initial impulse to watch other people and to judge their behaviour and even to police their behaviour in the case of things like, well, are they standing two metres away from me? Are they wearing a mask that is pulled up over their nose for pro-social reasons designed to keep everybody safe from this awful virus? How quickly that urge to keep everyone safe risked souring into a more kind of puritanical desire to shame other people for behaving unreasonably for things like families cooped up in a tiny flat using their one hour of exercise to play a game Mm. of footy in the park rather than going for a joyless walk benches taped off without considering the needs of disabled people in case people might want to sit down and that's when I realized that I wasn't finished at all I started writing about this in every aspect of our lives, from theatres and audiences judging each other Mm. to cafes and restaurants and aeroplanes and trains and also the streets in instances of public protest with these upsurgences of demonstrations that then the government has been trying to crack down on. So the pandemic has amplified something that you'd already written about in strictly in terms of the theatre um, in your your academic work, the work, the reasonable audience. Now that was published in 2018, and in that you go quite a long way back, talking, giving examples of when either actors or uh, producers or audience members felt that somebody was being unreasonable somewhere 
along the line. Uh, there was an example of Imelda Staunton uh, trying to get people not to take food into a theatre because it, it had annoyed her. I certainly speak as someone who does not particularly want someone munching a bag of crisps in my right ear while I'm trying to watch a bit of Ibsen or, or something. In fact, one of my strangest experiences was watching The Tempest in the Cinema from the RSC sitting next to someone who had a big bowl of popcorn. Now, the, the cinema and popcorn, I get. Um, the theatre and popcorn certainly is something I'd never associate with, and it was a strange hybrid. And I guess we get the same thing at concerts as well, where you have people near you singing along or getting up to get a beer, and and, and the contract is different than it is from if you're going to a theatre, and you're paying the same sort of money. So it's not it's not that that's the defining factor of... Um, who gets to set the rules for these places. This is something that goes back quite a long way. It's not new post-pandemic by any means, but maybe it's become heightened since then because of those other things you mentioned that have gone on, on in society. Yes. So I traced the emergence in that academic book. That's the £50 one. So I am hoping that your listeners will have access to libraries where they could read it for free. But what I did in that book, which was only meant to be a short article, and then it, before I knew it, I'd written 50 odd thousand words, tracing the complexities of this massive question of how we should behave in the theatre. And I studied contemporary discourse, looking at how people were writing guides for audience members, particularly post-millennium, designed to retrain an imagined, badly behaved audience into the norms of silent reverence that were expected of them. So I studied the kinds of rhetoric that people were using, the language that they were using to talk about behaviour in the theatre today. But then I also, of course, had to trace it backwards to situate it in that big question of where that norm of silent reverence in the theatre came from in the first place. So to do that, I turned to a range of brilliant historical studies by people like Caroline Heim and Lawrence Levine. Uh, his book Highbrow slash Lowbrow was really illustrative and Eleonora Belfiore and Oliver, Oliver Bennett's The Social Impact of the Arts. And what the story that collectively those three works told, as well as shorter articles like Baz Kershaw's Oh for Unruly Audiences, was that while nobody that I know is saying that the problem is, say, that working class audiences today don't know how to behave or that politeness is a middle class norm. Nobody is saying that. We do have to face up to, I think, an irrefutable historical fact that that norm of total silence and complete stillness in the arts came from a particular time and place, which was the 19th century. And what happened to, obviously, reduce the complexity of quite a complex set of historical dilemmas. What happened in a nutshell was that at that time, sudden rapid industrialization had to mass migration to urban centers. And suddenly those strict societal hierarchies where everybody could collect together into the same spaces within theatres, watch the same shows, albeit in their carefully segregated tiers within the theatre, that began to break down 
and cultural elites of the time, people who were poets and critics and involved in the making of art, they began to panic. So Matthew Arnold is somebody that I looked at a lot. His work, Culture and Anarchy. Because he had, Lawrence Levine says that he had a, an extraordinary influence over artistic practice at the time and his impact, we can still see it reverberating absolutely today. He was a cultural critic and a polemicist and a writer and he did a kind of cross-Atlantic lecture tour where he warned that society was crumbling into anarchy, the newly imagined masses were going to take over and civilization was breaking down. But don't worry, he said, because we have the antidote to that already. The antidote is culture, more specifically, that newly imagined model of highbrow culture, what he called the best that has been thought or said in the world. And I spent in writing The Reasonable Audience, I spent some time wrestling over what seemed to me to be quite a paradox in that, because if, as we know, that by and large, those imagined masses, particularly working class people, have been disproportionately excluded from the arts as audience members and as practitioners, which there's some really great data in the book, Culture is Bad for You by Dave O'Brien et al., which proves that working class audiences by and large are those which tend not to attend particularly theatrical kinds of events, then how could the arts be used as a tool to civilise the masses? It seemed to make no sense. But Lawrence Levine has a really good answer. He says that um, when they, when people like Matthew Arnold and also Richard Wagner reimagined the arts as a space for silent reverence, where the best that could be thought or said could take place, then only the people who they deemed capable of appreciating in the right way should be allowed to attend. But that was only meant to be a temporary manoeuvre, and Lawrence Levine calls it the trickle-down model of culture, which suggests, as in Matthew Arnold's own words, that the blessings of these cultural, these perfect cultural experiences would spread throughout the nation and, he said, create a national glow of life and thought. So I think the idea originally was just discipline people until they could be trusted to return to the arts but by and large it tends to be arts goers particularly in um, in straight theatre particularly tend to be white and middle class and economically privileged and also predominantly able-bodied yeah so we're still stuck in the shadow of that sort of thinking yeah, and in The Reasonable Audience, I do take very seriously those audiences who've talked to me over the decade that I've been doing this research about the power and the pleasure of that shared experience, that quiet, focused attention that so often we fail to be able to find a place for mm -hmm. in every aspect of our increasingly distracted and mediated lives. So I do take that pleasure really seriously, but I also take seriously those people, whether it's disabled people like Jess Tom, the amazing Tourette's hero activist, who talks about how she was asked to sit in the sound booth during a performance, despite informing the performer that she'd be there beforehand and 
informing the audience about her verbal and physical tics. Mm. She was still deemed to be overly disruptive and asked to leave the auditorium. And she talks about how that seemingly reasonable accommodation caused her unreasonable pain. And also, I take seriously people like Dominique Mariso, who's an amazing Black American playwright, who talks about how, as a Black woman working in the theatre, sometimes her plays invite a more vocal form of call and response, and how, for her, that is a mode of paying respect. But increasingly, that has seen her as an audience member and also audience members, particularly black women at her plays, she said, have been disciplined and told to shush by usually white audiences. So I balance all of these competing expectations and hopes and pleasures up. And fundamentally, I just ask, well, we need to think if what seems sometimes what seems reasonable to us might be excluding other people and failing to consider other people in ways that we don't necessarily understand. Yeah, you make the point that uh, defining reasonableness is a hugely difficult thing because it almost inevitably means uh, you are going to end up policing somebody else's behaviour just by the act of actually trying to define what reasonableness is from your point of view, which is inevitably going to be somewhat different from their point of view. I do, yes. And I was able really to do a deep dive into those big socio-political questions in On Being Unreasonable, because that's where I really had the chance to explore where that reasonable standard came from in the first place. And I realised how deeply it was originally called the reasonable man standard, how deeply that has been embedded in both our moral judgment systems, but also our legal judgment systems as well. Moral philosophers were obsessed for centuries with the idea of what it means to be reasonable. And more recently, legal scholars have been explaining how that reasonable standard encoded in everything from reasonable doubt to reasonable use of force to reasonable accommodations in disability law, how that idea of the reasonable person was meant to be an objective, neutral arbiter, but in practice has often risked being embedded in the same subjective biases as all of us. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is not, do we need behavioural rules? Because of course we do. We need mechanisms for figuring out how to draw that line between acceptable and unacceptable, appropriate and inappropriate, reasonable and unreasonable, good and bad, lawful and illegal. We need to be able to draw those lines. But I argue that we also need to think really carefully and critically about who historically has had the power to set the rules and to draw those lines for everybody else, who those rules of engagement were built to benefit, and who is excluded, disenfranchised, and even harmed. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's such a big, such big questions. All I can do is, is point people towards your book because we've only skimmed the surface uh, in this short conversation about it. it. It feels a little crass to just leap to my question about. So, what is it about theatre behaviours at the minute? Um, to bring it right up to date, because we do, we are in a moment where we seem to be hearing a lot about how audiences are misbehaving. I have to say, I go to the theatre a lot, and I have never been in a situation where I've, you know, been uh, other than um, annoyed by someone crinkling their sweetie paper too much or 
um, having to get up for a pee in the middle of the play. Um, but there is a lot of talk about, uh, particularly in sort of the jukebox party shows of people drinking too much and singing too loudly and uh, re- making retorts to the to the uh, actors. But is is the, are we in different times or is it just we're more aware of it because we've all got an instant way of talking about it these days and publicising these things that happen? Well, if you'd asked me that question before lockdown, I would have leaned much more heavily into the things were ever thus. Um, because we absolutely, as we've said, we've been having these debates for a very long time. Everybody, at every point throughout history, there have been people who said that audiences have never been more badly behaved than today, and particularly complaints about younger generations famously erupt every few years or so. But I do think that things have shifted. Something fundamental has shifted since the pandemic. And and I don't think it's crass at all to bring it back to this point. In fact, this is precisely why I study theatre audiences, because the more I study theatre audiences, the more I realise that This has always been the place, live performance venues and the arts more broadly, they've always been spaces where vast societal frustrations that have been bubbling under the surface for some time erupt often here first. And I think that's what we're seeing here today. So I do try to to take the necessary time and care to interrogate this in the book more broadly. In fact, that's why it, it often takes this one's 80,000 words I think so I'm not going to be able to do it justice just in this answer but in brief what we're seeing is two competing things so first of all we are seeing a hunger by some people for what we call or what I call in the book collective effervescence which is a term I've taken from a philosopher um, called Durkheim and that is a hunger for experiences of collective, joyful, exuberant fun, the kind that we might get, say, from going to festivals. And I trace the historical processes by which public space, more broadly, and particularly the streets, the processes by which people's behaviour got increasingly curtailed and repressed away from being able to show that kind of fun collective joy from street parties to festival cultures and how those things are increasingly corporatized. So there is an aching hole, I think, at the centre of social life. And for some people coming into the theatres, particularly for jukebox musicals, there is perhaps a not unreasonable expectation, largely due to marketing practices, which call these things a fun night out, they call it the best party in town very Perhaps for some people that expectation is being seeded that they're going to have a fun time and be able to let off some steam. And of course, when they get there, then very often they're told that your idea of fun isn't the right one, or you can have fun, but not in those ways or not too much. And that's what happened at the bodyguard. But that's not the only thing that we're seeing happening. Because What I'm hearing, particularly from front of house staff and ushers who are often the poorest paid in the entire sector, is that it's not just about the 
frequency of these events. It's not just that we're seeing more people, say, singing along. What we're seeing is an increased belligerence in the reaction to having that bad behaviour called out. And I do also think that that's part of lockdown because we became more attuned to each other's bodies and behaviours than ever before in order to keep ourselves safe and to enact community care. We had to watch out for how far away that person is standing, say. And oh goodness, did that was that a cough? Was that completely covered by the mask? But then after an initial period where it really did feel for a lot of people that we're all in this together, we're all taking care of ourselves and each other, that sense began to fragment. And I go into the book about the rupture point. I don't really want to bore you with that, but it was all part of, in Britain, particularly the political response to Dominic Cummings driving to Barnard Castle. Research shows that that's when that sense of collective responsibility really did fragment. And what we started to see then when mask mandates began to be lifted is some people choosing not to wear them, other people who perhaps had immunocompromised family that they're returning to were perhaps calling them out for it, and an increased resistance to being told what to do by fellow members of the public, but also by politicians. And in the bodyguard, what we saw is it's not just that somebody came in wanting to sing along, it's that when they were asked to talk, that when they're asked to stop, instead of saying, sorry, I misunderstood, they became instantly that we saw. So that escalated very quickly into a belligerent response. If you can't tell me what to do, I came here because I wanted to sing along to these songs that I know so well. And then that escalated really quickly into the violent scenes that we saw on social media and on the news. And it's those two things going hand in hand that I think are leading to the problems that we're seeing in theatre. And my worry is that I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. Because on the one hand, we have people who are working in the industry who are calling for a much wider range of more relaxed, more sociable, more vocal forms of performance. And on the other hand, we have venues cracking down on any form of disruption. Like, for example, a venue recently that reaffirmed their policy that no under fives were going to be allowed in the venue unless it clearly signalled that it was a child's performance. There is a really reasonable anxiety by a lot of people who are running venues about the need to keep particularly their staff safe. That has to be of paramount importance. No one deserves to go to work and be at risk of abuse or even violence. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody who is hungering for a more sociable kind of experience in the theatre is necessarily wrong. Perhaps there could be a space somewhere in the industry for a wider range of sing-along shows and relaxed performances that are designed for people with different needs and also spaces where people with young babies, say, can come and feel welcome in these spaces, like that amazing performance of Amelia that was uh, a Babes in Arms performance. 
perhaps there could be more spaces within theatre for what at the moment are very few and far between alternative modes of experience. Yes, in, into which the commercial concerns of the theatres have to be factored as well. So that's a pretty complex thing for somebody to try and work out. It is. And that word complex, I think, is key to everything that I argue, which is not that I'm some ultimate arbiter of what is arbiter of what is reasonable, and that I therefore should be telling everyone how their venues should be managed and policed. Absolutely not. All I'm saying is that what I identify in the discourse, whether it's about theatres and their audiences, or whether it's about engagement and the social contract in every aspect of our lives is there is a tendency to think that our own preferences are well, the thing that is reasonable and it's just simple it's just common sense but actually these are really tricky questions of human interrelations and if we're serious about living in a democracy that is multicultural and multi-generational then we have to beware the urge to wade in and to lay down the law before we enter into healthier, more open forms of communication about what we want life to be like. Mm-hmm.